you guys want to come back to your seats? This morning, one of the, what I want to talk about is uh, the idea of pronouncing blessing. Pronouncing blessing. We're in our series in Deuteronomy. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 19. Chapter 19 is where we're going to kind of camp out and move from this morning. Um, but it's this idea of pronouncing a blessing. Now, you've seen this done. We talked a couple of weeks about the, the fact that Yahweh is giving. We've talked about the theme of Deuteronomy. The, the theme is that God is the one who gives. He gives. The question is, what will our response be to his gift? Do, do we see his gifts as a gift or do we see them as a burden? Do we see his law as a gift or do we see it as a burden? Do we see a relationship with him as a gift to us or is it a burden? And if we're really honest, and if I'm honest sometimes with myself, when I think about a relationship with God or I think about God and his word and how he shows us who he is and how we should live life, most of the time I approach it from the mentality of this is hard, not this is a blessing, this is a gift. I don't see life as a gift. Many times I see my life as a, as a right, that I deserve to live. I deserve to have good things. I deserve all these things. When in reality, it's a gift. The reason that you have the freedom that you do and can sit here this morning, the reason that I had the freedom that I had this week to be out on a beach and to talk to people and, and vacation, which vacation was great for us. It was a good time to get away. I got to read like five books, which is awesome. I love to read when I go on vacation. And it was a blessing. It's also a blessing to be home. <laughs> because I don't vacation well. <laughs> I like to be busy in doing things. But in the midst of all of that, it's amazing to me that we forget that the reason that we have the freedom that we have is because someone gave. I mean, we're celebrating July 4th. The people died so that you could be free to make choices. They're, people aren't free in other countries like we are here. They don't have the right to say what they want to say. They don't have the right to travel where they want to travel. They're restricted. And we have that freedom because it's mirrored in the gospel that someone gave their life so we could have life. If you're here right now, it's because someone gave their life for you to live. Someone fed you. My guess is most of you aren't working full time if you're a child and feeding yourself and going to the grocery and buying your groceries and making your meals. There are places in the world where young children have to do that because they're not taken care of. If you're here, it's because you've been taken care of. It's because someone laid down their life to be sure that you had life. See, that, that's what God is. God is a giver. He, he gives. But our problem is we don't see it that way. My problem is I don't see it that way. My problem is I see the things that God gives me as burdens and problems to fix, not as good things. And so this morning, what we're going to look at is the idea of pronouncing blessings. And see, again, I said a few weeks ago, that word blessing is really twisted in Scripture. It's twisted. The, the, the way we've twisted it in our culture is it always relates back to things I want. That I get to declare whether something's a blessing or not. I get to say whether something's good or not. Right? This is good, this isn't good. Right? Like, I, I get to say, Brussels sprouts, bad. Broccoli, pretty good. Right? Like, I get to say that. Some of you are offended. I saw some faces like, wait a minute, but I love Brussels sprouts, right? <laughs> Praise God for you. Um, like, like, we think we have the right to determine those things when it's God who has that right. And really the word blessing, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, means happy. It means joy. It doesn't matter what you get. It's your response to it that determines in your heart whether you see it as a blessing or see it as a curse. That's the reality of the world we live in, that we live in a broken world, in a world that's constantly proclaiming cursing, that's constantly proclaiming death. And even in that, that was a blessing from God, that he didn't want sin to go on forever, and so he made sure that our lives ended so that we look to him for our salvation, not be our own God. Because let's be honest, if you and I had the ability to live forever, we would be our own gods. We wouldn't listen to anybody. You can't hurt me. I can do what I want. So God, even in his mercy, allowed death to enter into the world because of our bad choice. 
because of Adam's bad choice, so that we would cry out to something other than our own selfish desires. And in the scriptures we'll read this morning in Deuteronomy 19, as we walk through this, there are some weird laws. Moses has kind of been walking through the law. If you remember, this is Moses' last statement to the people of God before he goes on to be with God forever. This is his last will and testament. He's giving them the reminder of the law. They've been wandering in the desert 40 years. They don't feel very blessed because they haven't been able to get into the promised land that they think they're that they need to have, that God has promised. And so there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of, are we going to get there? Are we going to mess up again? And God's saying, yes, you're going to get in. Moses is reminding them that once you get into the promise, once that you understand what God is giving you, here's what the proper response should be to it. That's the law. He lays it out and says, here's what the proper response is to understanding that God is giving you all this. And so in chapter 19, the next few chapters, there are all these, it's like a list of like laws. Like do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this. I mean, it's just like, brr. and you read through it and you're like, okay, that's weird. Like there's some weird ones in here when you read it. It seems weird to us, but it's not weird to God. He chose to put it in there for a reason. You also have to remember that when you read through these laws, this is a different culture. It's a culture we don't understand. Our culture's messed up. I think we all agree on that to a lot of extent. Our individualism in our cult, individualism didn't exist back in this culture. You couldn't survive as an individual back then. You couldn't even inherit land if you didn't have an heir. In any of the cultures, individualism was not something anyone strived for back then. Your desire was to build a family, a family line, a group, a tribe of people. Today we're like, no, they get in my way. Then I can't travel and see Europe. I don't want any tribe. I just want me and maybe one person to go with. Because all those other things get in my way. That's our culture today. It's completely opposite to the culture that we read about here. And just as destructive. So let's dive in. Deuteronomy 19.1 says this, and we're going to go through this quickly. When the Lord your God annihilates the nations whose land he is giving you so that you drive them out and live in their cities and houses... You are to set apart three cities for yourselves within the land your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Notice, he's not saying when you earn this, when you get it, when you do all the right stuff. He said, look, God's going to give this to you. You don't deserve it. You've been wandering around in the desert because you don't do the right thing. You're going to get in the land and not do the right thing, but God's still going to be generous. That's the gospel. We don't deserve heaven. But Jesus laid down his life so that we could have a way to be with him. It's the same thing. He said, you're determined the distance distances and divide the land your Lord your God is granting you as an inheritance into three regions so that anyone who commits manslaughter can flee to these cities. Right now popular in culture is the idea of the cities of refuge, right? Sanctuary cities we talk about in our culture. By the way, we're not doing it right. The sanctuary cities of the Old Testament, you fled there and had to obey the law, not fled there because you broke the law. Like, like it's a totally different idea. And here we have these sanctuary cities. The idea of sanctuary cities came from God. And we think we're so smart. Like, oh, we're going to be so much more better than anybody else. Like, we're going to just do it so bad. You realize that the idea was like thousands of years ago God had this idea. <laughs> because he knew that we're selfish and that we're going to want to take blood when someone hurts us. And that's what this is about. He said, here's the law concerning a case of someone who kills a person and flees there to save his life. Because if you kill someone, justice has to be done. And in that day, anyone who killed someone, the person from the other tribe had the right to kill someone from your tribe. That's the way it used to be in this country. And ever heard of the Hatfields and the McCoys? That's the Hatfields and the McCoys. We did the same. He's, look, I get it. Justice needs to be served. If you take a life, a life has to be given. That's why Christ Jesus had to die. Because God pronounced a sentence of death unless someone died in our place. He didn't say, you don't have to die. He said, I'm putting the sentence on my son. Now, how do you respond to that gift? Will you give your life for others? Or will you say, hey, thanks a lot. Now I can live the life I want to live. It's the same thing here. He goes on, he says... Here's the law. Having killed his neighbor, look at this, accidentally without previously hating him. So there's already a determination. 
were you like really mad at your neighbor? So you like, and we'll see this in a minute, you like loosened your axe head so when you were swinging and he was in front of you, it like flew off and it hit him and, oh, oh I'm so sorry. I don't know how that happened. Well, it looks like you loosened the axe head. No, I know. I think you hated him. You talked about hating him all the time. You see, God's serious. He says, look, you've got to determine first the person's heart. How'd the death happen? Was there hatred in their heart that led to this death? Or was it just an accident? Were these like the best of friends and all of a sudden, the ra- like it was an actual accident? See, that's, that's what this talks about. He says, you got to check the heart. Was there any anger? If he goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut timber and his hand swings the axe to chop down a tree, but the blade flies off the handle and strikes. I love that God's like so specific. He gives this really specific scenario of what could happen, right? I mean, can you imagine that reading this to your kids? Okay, kids, let me tell you the story about the axe. Like, and it goes on, it says, so that he dies, that person may flee to one of these cities and live. Do you understand that if we don't flee to God and his city, heaven, that we will not live? That we are called right now as believers in Jesus to continue to keep our eyes on things above, on the city above. I don't live here, I live there. Same thing here. I deserve death here. I recognize that if I keep going around here, I'll be dead. But once I get to the city there, I'll never die again. I can have life. This is a picture of that in the Old Testament laid out for us. But instead we read this and go, wow, this is really weird. I don't understand this. I I don't know how this relates to anything. And then we just move on. We go look for a verse that pronounces the blessing I'm looking for instead of diving into this and thinking about what a blessing this could be to a society. That you can't just take blood when you want to. There's got to be a process. There's protections in place. God is a God of giving and grace. He says, otherwise, the avenger of the blood and the heat of his anger might pursue the one who committed manslaughter. In other words, two boys are out chopping wood and the axe head flies off and you kill your friend and the other father decides that was my heir to the land. Now I don't have an heir to inherit. Now I I don't have what I, and he's so mad, he may just come and find your son and kill you and say, take that. And God's like, that's not how I want my society to work. That's how all the other societies at this time worked. That's how all the nations around them work. And God's saying, I got a different way of doing things. There is justice. And you need to determine justice. And there are consequences to our actions. But be careful how you handle these situations. And he says, he might overtake him because the distance is great and strike him dead. Yet he did not deserve to die. Wait a minute, I thought it was eye for an eye, which we'll read in just a second, a tooth for a tooth. No. God just doesn't come out and just do things out of anger and frustration. There's a process, there's a purpose, and God says he didn't deserve to die. It was an accident. He didn't have any hatred since he did not previously hate his neighbor. This is why I'm commanding you to set apart these cities for yourselves. He says you You've got to protect when things things are going to happen. You live in a broken world. People die. And you need to take responsibility. You can't say, oh, it's an accident. I can just live however I want. I don't have to worry about it. No, there's going to be consequences. And I don't want you having to look over your shoulder the rest of your life afraid that the Hatfields and McCoys are after you because you killed their son. There's a city you can flee to. There's a place you can go to. Now, if you're thinking about this story and it's your son that has to flee, do you think that's very fair? Well, it was an accident. Why can't they stay living in my house? Why can't they stay with me in my city? Why can't they stay here? No, they're going to have to leave and they're going to have to go live in one of these refuge cities. But the refuge city, there's going to have a lot of people who have done these things. I don't know if I like those cities. I don't don't know if they'll be protected. I don't know what's going to happen. No. Praise God, your son has taken ownership of his sin and he's willing to flee to God himself in the city he set up as a testimony so you can say to people, my son killed someone and he obeyed the command and he fled to the city and he's living for God there under his grace. Isn't that great? Most of us aren't going to say that. 
We're going to say, oh, it's just so unfortunate that my son killed someone. I don't understand why God took him away from me. I don't understand why God would make him go to another city. I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand. Do you believe God? Do you believe that he's trying to reveal things about himself, about us, and about heaven itself? Because that's what these cities do. And can you imagine living in a city like this where you're looking around and all of you have done things that you deserve? Like, I took a life. I don't know if you've ever had to take a life. If any of you have been soldiers, there's some in this room who have. And you've had to take a life. You have to live with that the rest of your life. That is not an easy thing to live with. But you know that the cost of freedom requires death. That's a biblical theme as well as our nation. And so as a result, you give your life. And so these sons, these people would give their lives understanding God's law. He goes on and he says, if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers and gives you all the land he promised to give them, provided you keep every one of the commands I'm giving you today and follow them, loving the Lord your God and walking in his ways at all times, you're to add three more cities to these three cities or to these three. In this way, innocent blood will not be shed, and you will not become guilty of bloodshed in the land your God is giving you as an inheritance. He's like, look, sometimes innocent blood gets shed. It's a broken world. And I'm trying to, to give ways for you to understand how I'm doing things so that you can love one another and understand the boundaries in your life. Because if you don't understand that, you'll just make them up. And God lays this out. Then he goes on and he says, if someone hates his neighbor and lies in ambush for him, attacks him and strikes him fatally, and flees to one of these cities. The elders of his city must sin for him, take him from there, and hand him over to the avenger of blood, and he will die. You must not look on him with pity, but purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood, and you will prosper. This is capital punishment. It's the idea that if you shed blood... And you did it and you meant to do it. It was out of the evil of your heart and you planned it and you attacked. This is why we have different degrees of murder in our culture, right? Involuntary manslaughter, manslaughter, murder two, murder one. We have all these things. Why? Because we're trying to determine the heart. Did this person in their heart have an intent to kill? And if they did, that's serious. But they might not have. And we have to handle people. He said, you live in a messy world. I'm giving you these laws as a blessing. And can we be honest? Most of our laws are set up on this kind of stuff. And we think we're just so smart we figured it out. No. The founders read the Bible. They believed the Bible. They believed it was one of the greatest legal books ever written. So they fashioned our legal system after Scripture. Now, we've twisted it all up, but that's what they've done. I've said this numerous times. We have three branches of government because our founders read Isaiah where it says the Lord is our king, the Lord is our judge, and the Lord is our lawgiver. And they said no one, no king, no person can have all three branches. We have to separate them for the protection of the people because only God can hold that power. It wasn't an accident. They read the Bible and thought, wow, God's smarter than we are. Let's do what he says. That's the way we're supposed to be in our own lives. He said if someone... He goes on and he says this, you must not move your neighbor's boundary marker established at the start in the inheritance you receive in the land your Lord, your, your God is giving you to possess. In other words, you know what happens when you, how many of you have ever had a neighbor and you had a property dispute? How'd that go? Was that just wonderful? And you're like, oh yeah, you could have it. Oh, no big deal. It's, we're fine. We're not going to bring any lawyers in. No survey. No, we'll just get along. Is that, is that what you did? No. God knew that when you start messing with people's boundaries, that he, especially the ones he's established, because he established where their tribes were going to live. And he said, you can't go past here. And he drew a line from city to city. And he said, here's your section. Here's your section. Here's your section. And we all go, well, that's nice, but it's not quite enough. And he said, look, I'll give you more land as you're obedient to me, but you don't have the right to take it. You have to obey me. And he says, if you're doing that, don't. Don't move the boundary marker. You don't know why? Because then you're going to start killing each other. You're going to be the Hatfields and McCoys shooting across the valley at each other. Your son's going to be walking along. and be like, oh, I'm deer. Boom. Oh, I thought your son was a deer. I'm sorry. 
yeah, you just wanted to take my property. Now my son's dead and I don't have an heir. Oh, no, I would never do such a thing. See, God knows the heart of your heart, my heart, and the heart of his people. These laws aren't there to kind of be weird. They're there because he knows where they end up at. He knows where our heart will run to, and he's trying to give us boundaries to keep us from going there. He goes on and he says this, one witness cannot establish any wrongdoing or sin against a person. Whatever that person has done, a fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, you can't come and because you have a lot of power, make an accusation and that makes it right. You can't. You can't say, well, I believe my son because I'm the king and so everybody believe my son. No, no, no. There has to be multiple witnesses involved. He goes on and he says, if a malicious witness testifies against someone accusing him of a crime, the two people in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and judges in authority at that time. Can you imagine this scene? They can't get along. They can't figure it out. And they actually have to come and stand in the presence of God's judges, his priests. And they have to stand there and, and give their case. The two people in dispute must stand. The judges are to make a careful investigation. That's what we do. Most of us like watching the TV shows where they do this, all within an hour. It's amazing how they can solve every crime in an hour, right? When it takes some crimes a lifetime to be solved. And we want it now, quick justice. He says, you've got to make a thorough investigation, and if the witness turns out to be a liar who's falsely accused his brother, you must do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from you. See, so often we go into a judgment saying, this is what I want, this is what I want to see happen, and we don't have the full story. We don't understand what really is going on, and so we walk into it saying, this is, what it's going to, this is what's going to happen, and God says, yeah, just be ready that when you do that, the judges are standing there, waiting, to say the measure by which you judge will be judged back to you. That's in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, don't judge. And then he says, the, the measure by which you judge will be judged back to you. He's quoting this, which we'll look at in a second. He's laying it out. He's laying out these laws, and he's saying, look, be careful that you're making an accusation. And you ready for this? Be careful. Why do you want justice so badly when God has given you so much and you've been forgiven of so much? Do you really want justice because you're concerned for your neighbor? You're concerned about this individual hurting someone else? You're concerned about the future of what this individual is going to do if you don't approach it? Or are you just mad and you want justice for yourself and I'll take it, thank you very much? And if that's your heart, be ready because the judges may come back on you. That's huge. That, that kind of takes the accusations and kind of squishes them and goes, ah, better be careful before I start accusing everyone. I better be very careful about accusing. He goes on and he says, the reason I want you to do all this is so everyone else will hear and be afraid. <laughs> exactly. Did you hear what happened to Johnny? Johnny said Bobby did this and then they went before the judges and then John, Johnny's not here anymore. <laughs> he, he, he told a lie. Don't, don't do that. He goes on and he says, and they will never do anything like that. Anything evil like this among you, you must not show pity. Life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot. Now again, we run to that and say, well, if someone cuts their foot off, then I cut it off. No, that's not what he just laid out. He laid out how to make good determinations and have grace. How to be careful, how to do investigations. Listen, this is brand new law. There's no other nation on the planet at this time doing these things. No other one. All the other nations are pretty much ruled by a pharaoh or a king. There's not like a group of priests that make a decision collectively together by praying to their God and seeking the right outcome. The other nations are making decisions based on what's best for those in authority. God is saying, I don't care what authority they have. We're going to get to the bottom of things. This is brand new. Never existed before in the history of the planet when you read this. See, it's hard for us because we live in a country where these things are practiced and we don't know where they came from. They came from the Bible. They came from Scripture, from a God that says, I love you, I want you to know these things, and then we think we're so smart and we got it figured out. It's like, no, God revealed it. He gave it as a gift, as a blessing to us. This isn't a burden. This is amazing if you really think about it. 
And it's amazing because if we do these things, your and my heart will be challenged. This challenges my heart when you look through these. Did I have any evil intent when that accident happened? Right? We drove 13 and a half hours there, 13 hours, half hours back. We, we went on vacation. One of my biggest pet peeves is you're driving in the left-hand lane. And the person's doing under the speed limit somewhere up in front of you. It could be 75 cars up. I'm just like, what is going on up there, right? And then all of a sudden, like that's bad enough. But then you got this guy that like flies up on your bumper. And then he wants to get around you, right? And they're like, dude, you're not going anywhere, right? He's swerving. And so he flies up and then he's going to cut back in, which then everybody has to break, right? And it's like, ooh, you got two more cars ahead, Winner, winner, chicken dinner. How special you are. Now you get to sit with the, all of us instead of there, two cars up. Woo! Like, it drives me nuts. Right? So here's the example. I'm driving along. I'm cruising down the road. And when I see that guy coming up beside me, you know what I do? I back off, give him plenty of room so he can get in and say, here, I want you to learn a lesson. You just come in front of me and you be in front of me. And then I go three car lengths and I count out so I don't. That is not what I do. When I see him coming, dude, I'm timing it. I'm like, I'm, in the, I'm like, you're going to, and I'm a, I am on the bumper of the car in front of me, like, like this, and I'm not looking at him. I'm not looking over, right? And you know, and his blinker's on, and I'm like, no. Go back. You know, I mean, that's what, that's my heart. God knows your heart. He knows that that's my heart, right? Like, you are not going to do this and cause a, no, Right? Now, if the person in front of me slams on their brakes and I smack into them, and the police say, why were you following at two inches? Well, because the guy is flying up and he's just, gonna, I couldn't run him off the road, so I had to just stay in my lane. He's going to look and go, why, why did you hate that guy so bad? You rear-ended someone over your hatred. Guilty. Yep. I could have let everybody go around me. Stayed three car lengths back and car came in and go another car length. Another one comes in, go another car length. I could have obeyed the law. But my heart, it's not my heart. That's exactly what God says. He goes, it's not your heart to give like that. That's my heart because I'm a giver, God says. But that's not your heart. And, and if you get in an accident and you're doing that kind of stuff, don't expect mercy. Because you weren't following where you should have been at a safe distance. It's the same thing with this. He goes on and he says, when you go out to war against your enemy and see horses, chariots, and an army larger than yours, don't be afraid of them. For the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt is with you. When you're about to engage them as battle, the priest is to come forward and address the army. Isn't that crazy? The priest comes forward. This is what we still to do today in battle, if you don't know this. Oftentimes, chaplains, before, before soldiers will go out to battle, the chaplains will come to our armies and pray with soldiers to get them ready to go out. doesn't always happen, but that happens on the major battles. He goes on and he says, he is to say to them, listen, Israel, today you're about to engage in battle with your enemies. Don't be cowardly. Don't be afraid, alarmed, or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God is one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to give you victory. The officers are to address the army. Has any man built a new house and not dedicated it? I love this. Let him leave and return home. Otherwise, he may die in battle and another man dedicated. God says the priority of the home is even bigger than the priority of the military. He goes on and he says, has any man planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy its fruit? Let him leave and return home. Otherwise, he may die in battle. Another man enjoy its fruit. Has any man became engaged to a woman and not married her? Let him leave and return home. Otherwise, he may die in battle. Another man marry her. The officers will continue to address the army and say, Is there any man who's afraid or cowardly? I love this. God's saying, You all have excuses. I get it. Fine. I'll win with whatever's left who will fight for me. Which excuse are you going to take? Can you imagine how many guys planted vineyards right before they were going to a battle? Like, I just planted. I know you can't see the seed, but it's in there. I'm waiting. Because I don't want to go fight. 
I don't want to have to lay down my life for anyone else. See, our God is the opposite of this. He left his home. He left his vineyard. He left everything to not be a coward, but to come to earth and to die in your and my place. That's what he did. He, he gave it all up. He said, it's worth it. Nothing compares, no vineyard, no house, no nothing compares to glorifying my Father in heaven. And I know he'll give me more houses and more vineyards than ever could be imagined so I can lay it all down. I don't have to be scared of anything or be cowardly. Let him leave and return home so that his brother's hearts won't melt like his own. When the officers have finished addressing the army, he will, they will appoint military commanders to lead it. Once you find out who's really gonna fight, who's not a coward. And can you imagine being sent home? Yeah, I'm a coward. That's me. I'm a coward. I'm a coward. Right? That's some pressure right there, right? Your friend's going, didn't you just plant that vineyard like two weeks ago? Seriously, dude? You knew we were going to war. Come on. See, this is incredible accountability when you think about it. He goes on and he says, when you approach a city to fight against it, you must make an offer of peace. You must make an offer of peace. If it accepts your offer of peace and opens up the gates to you, all the people found in it will become forced laborers for you and serve you. However, if it does not make a peace with you but wages war against you, lay siege to it. When the Lord your God hands it over to you, you must strike down all its males with the sword. But you must take the women, children, animals, and whatever else is in the city. All its spoil is plunder. You may enjoy the spoil of your enemies the Lord your God has given you. This is how you're to treat the cities that are far away from you and that are not among the cities of these nations, the ones he said he, that you were to destroy. What's the first thing God does? He offers them peace. Hey, we, we want peace. I'm not looking for a fight. I'm the God of the universe. These are my people. I'm with them. I don't want to fight you. Will you surrender? Will you give your life? Will you worship me? He says the first thing you're supposed to do is offer peace and then see what their response is. He goes on and he says, and if they don't, then, then he says the women and children, the males, they're the ones that rose up because in those days the women and children didn't make decisions. It were the men of the city, every city and every culture that made the decisions. They made the decision. Take them out. It doesn't mean that those families couldn't go surrender, by the way. Because when we read later in Babylon, God called his people to leave their promised city to go surrender to Babylon so they would be spared. God's saying, there are probably families who did that. There are probably families in the countryside who said, our leaders are getting ready to fight against the God of the universe. We surrender, we come. And they would have been invited and grafted in. They would have been invited in to be a part of God's people. Or you can stand in opposition. And if you do that, there's judgment. He says, you must not let any of the living thing Survive among the cities of these people the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. You must completely destroy them, the Hittite, the Ammonite, the Canaanite, the Pezzarite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so they won't teach you to do all the detestable things they do for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. Remember, he said, I've done everything I can to reach these people. They won't listen. You've got to go to war. The reason we dropped two bombs in Japan is because of this. Was it awful? Absolutely. Absolutely horrendous what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Horrible. But there were a people there that believed that an emperor was God and they were willing to die no matter what he said. And until those bombs were dropped and he came on a public radio announcement against his generals and said, I'm not a God, we need to surrender to save our land, it was going to be bloodshed. Terrible. And in the end, it probably saved lives. See, this is the kind of stuff that's hard because we live in a broken, terrible world, and God knows that. He goes on and says, If a murder victim is found lying in a field in the land your Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it's not known who killed him, your elders and judges must come out, measure the distance from the victim to the nearby cities. The elders of the city nearest to the victim are to get a young cow that's not been yoked or used for work. The elders of that city will bring the cow down to continually flowing stream to a place not tilled or sown, and they will break its neck there by the stream. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, will come forward. For Yahweh your God has chosen them, the priests, to serve him and pronounce blessings in his name. See, the job of the priesthood was to pronounce the blessings of God. 
the happiness, the joy, to say this is what will make you happy. That was the priest's job, to say this is what God has told us will actually make us happy. We believe him over what we feel. We believe his word over what we see. We want to do what he says is the right thing to do for our happiness, for our blessing. And that's what the priest's job, that's their job. Their job was to pronounce happy. You want to be happy? This is what you do. Just do that. Do, live on a budget. You'll be happier, I promise. No, I'm not happy when I live on a, yes, you will. You'll be happy for a shorter amount of time if you don't. But in the end, if you don't live on it, you're going to be miserable. It's simple things that God walks through. And that's our job. God calls us as believers, the priesthood of believers, that if you've become a follower of Jesus, then you are a person who has been given the right to pronounce how happy you are about your God. But then we get to do that. Our problem is I'm really not that happy about my God or my life or my circumstances or anything else my list comes up with. And so I don't pronounce the happiness that I have in him, the happiness I have in heaven, the joy I'm going to experience with him someday when he takes me to the promised land and I inherit the land. It's the same story. It goes on and he says, and they are to give a ruling in every dispute and case and assault. All the elders of the city nearest to the victim will wash their hands by the stream over the young cow whose neck has been broken. Get, see the picture of this. All the leaders of the city are there and they're weeping and they're washing their hands and they're saying, we're so sorry, God. We don't know how this happened. We, don't hold this against us. Like, we, the, life shouldn't be taken like this. Like, can you imagine the scene? Most of us, when we hear about another murder in the, in the paper in Bloomington, we're like, oh, that's unfortunate. Glad I don't live in that part of town. And we move on with our lives. God's like, no, 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 no. You get on your face. You make a sacrifice, life for life, and you cry out to your God to say, please save us. Please help us. We're killing each other. He goes on and he says, they will declare, our hands did not shed this blood. Our eyes did not see it. Lord, forgive your people. Israel, you're redeemed. Do not hold the shedding of innocent blood against them. Then they will be absolved in responsibility for bloodshed. You must purge from yourselves the guilt for shedding innocent blood, for you will be doing what is right in the Lord's, side, Lord's eyes. When you go to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God hands them over to you, you take some of the prisoners, and you see a beautiful woman among the captives, desire her and want to take her as your wife, you are to bring her into her house. your house. She must shave her head, Trim her nails, remove the clothes she was wearing when she was taken prisoner, live in your house, and, and mourn for her father and mother for a full month. After that, you may have sexual relations with her and be her husband. Remember, marriage was always linked to sexual relations. The two will become one flesh in this culture. That, that was the symbol. See, we've, we've relegated sex outside of marriage, right? Sex is something you do, and, and then you get married. No, no, no. Sex and marriage were interlinked. You didn't do it until it was... Before God making a covenant, the two of us are going to become one. And that's what he's talking about here. And he's saying, after that, you may have sexual relations. Then if you are not satisfied with her, you are to let her go where she wants. But you must not sell her for money or treat her as merchandise because you've humiliated. This isn't you take the spoils and get what you want. This is a you take responsibility that she's going to become your wife. You're going to support her. You're going to support her children. You're going to give her your life for her if you really want her. And if you try to dismiss her, that's on you. You're going to be humiliated. And people are going to talk about you. She's to be treated with dignity and respect, not just something you use. This was not done in any other culture and even to this day isn't done in most cultures. This is radical that God would do this. That God is saying, look, if she's willing, you bring her in, you got to let her mourn for her mother and father. You don't just get to take her and, and take her out back and do what you want with her. you got to prepare her. you got to let her mourn. You've got to let her deal with her before you ever touch her. Wow. That's incredible. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved bear him sons, and if the unloved wife has the firstborn son, I love that God just assumes you're going to love one of them more. shouldn't have two wives. <laughs> the reason you have two is because you weren't satisfied with the first one. Let's just be honest. That's why you went for another one. Couldn't put up with that one. Maybe for good reason. I don't know. But he says, that's the reason you went to another one. 
He says, so you're going to now have a fight. You're going to have a tension. The kids aren't going to get along. There's going to be a war. It's going to be a big mess. That's what he's saying. When that man gives what he has to his sons and his inheritance, he is not to show favoritism to the son of the loved wife as his firstborn over the as his firstborn over the firstborn of the unloved wife. He must acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved wife, by giving him two shares of his estate. For he is the firstfruits of his virility. He has the rights of the firstborn. In other words, you don't get to create another family and give all the rights there. The rights stay with the decision that you make. That's crazy. We don't even practice this today. But this is God saying, I get your heart. I know what you're doing. You're trying to cover it up. You're not fooling me goes on, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father or mother and doesn't listen to them, even after they discipline him, his father and mother must take hold of him and bring him to the elders of the city, to the gate of his hometown. They will say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He doesn't obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city will stone him to death. You must purge the evil from you and all Israel will hear and be afraid. We're not talking about your son won't eat his Brussels sprouts and so you drag him before the elders, Okay. That's not what God's talking about. He says he's a drunkard. He's gone so far into being a mess. He won't listen to anybody. He's hurting other people. Doesn't give a rip. He's just using people. You are to take him yourself to the elders. Most of us would never allow that. Heard a story this week. Son was at a pool. Son and a dad. And the lifeguard. Son kept running around the pool. The lifeguard confronted the father or confronted the son, said, hey, no running. Look at the sign. There's a sign all over the pool. It says no running, all over, right? Hey, we don't run. You're, you're going to get hurt. You're going to hit someone else. You're going to hurt them. No running. The dad gets up out of his seat and comes and confronts the lifeguard and says, if you have anything to say to my son, you say it to me and I'll tell my son. But you don't get to discipline my son. You don't tell him what to do. That's our culture. And we've done it to ourselves. There are signs all over say that don't run. My dad would have been like, hey, you need a paddle? I'll help you. I'll hold him. That's my dad. My dad would have been like, I've been telling him not to run. You want to trip him? I'll hear. I mean, my dad would have been like, dude. Like, my dad would have been, not because he's unloving, because my dad doesn't want me hurting people. And they talk to me about that all the time. One of the greatest moments that I got in trouble for in my life was I threw an apple and broke a window that was already broken. And I got in so much trouble. And I'm like, I broke an already broken window. Like, what? Dad's like, yeah, but we've talked about this. You don't throw crab apples. We don't throw crab apples. Did you throw a crab apple? Yeah. We don't throw crab apples. You want to know why we don't throw crab apples? Because you start having wars with crab apples, and you're throwing them at your, your friend, and then you're throwing them at your brother and sister, and then someone gets a black eye, and then I'm in the emergency room spending money. I'm not, no crab apples. Don't throw them. So I didn't get in trouble for breaking a window. I got in trouble because my dad said, you don't understand what the destruction you can cause when you don't listen. That's what God's saying here. And most of us will never turn our kids over. Never. I'm the authority. I'm the one that says, and I won't give my kids over to anyone, not even a lifeguard at a pool, unless I say it's right. That's dangerous. You're creating rebellion you don't even understand that's going to rise up. And it's going to be wicked and it's going to spread. And that's exactly what we have in our country today. A bunch of individuals who no one can tell me what to do. It's ugly. If anyone's found guilty of an offense deserving the death penalty is executed and you hang his body on a tree, you're not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight but are buried in that day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not defile the land your Lord God is giving you as an inheritance. This is a reference to Jesus. He died and they had to hurry to get his body off of the tree so he could be buried in a grave donated. He didn't even have his own grave site. Because Jesus was hung on a tree for our curse. He took our curse on the tree for us. That's what he did. And God says, even when you do something like this, we don't obey this. Used to when they would do lynchings in the south, which was horrible. It was complete injustice. It was awful what happened in our country. They would leave people on those trees till their bodies fell apart and their necks ripped off. And then they called themselves Christians. You know, I'd, I wish you could have read Deuteronomy. It would have helped you. Deuteronomy said, don't leave them there. 
If the offense was so terrible that you had to take justice and you had to hang someone, don't leave them there. Give them a proper burial. But see, that just exposed their hearts. Their heart wasn't for justice, for themselves and how they wanted to treat people. A woman's not to wear male clothing. Man is not to put on woman's garment. For everyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord your God. See, you want to be who you want to be. You don't want to be who God created you to be. And you'll find any excuse to do it. Now, of course, you can get legalistic and say, uh-oh, I'm wearing jeans, I'm in trouble. No, that's not what God's talking about. He's talking about identifying yourself as a woman or as a man. Don't do it. God created you in this capacity. Live in it. If you come across a bird's nest, I love this. If you come across a, a bird's nest, going on, hold on. There's the, sorry, I didn't click. If you come across a bird's nest with chicks or eggs, either in a tree or on the ground along the road, and the mother's sitting on the chicks or eggs, you must not take the mother along with the young. You may take the young for yourself, but be sure the mother goes free so that you may prosper and live long. It's like Dr. Spock, live long and prosper. Anyway, like, why? Because if you kill the mom, she can't have any more babies. Duh. <laughs> like, if you take the eggs or take the little birds, she'll make more. This isn't rocket science, but God has to tell us simple things to do because otherwise we'll just take it all. Like, I want to eat the mom. I want to eat the babies. I want to find the dad too and kill him. I'll kill them all. I'll eat them. I'm all in my freezer because that's what we'll do. And God's like, no, that's not the kind of heart I want my people to have. I want my people to think beyond their immediate moment. But I'm really hungry and she looks so good and she'll be so great on my spigot. No. Think. If you build a new house, make a railing around the roof so that you don't bring bloodshed on your house if someone falls from it. I love this. God's like, look, if you're going to build a house, like, think about other people. I know you don't think you'll fall off the roof, but if someone falls off your roof because you didn't properly do what was supposed to be done, you're going to be held responsible. You're going to lose your house. You're going to have to flee to a sanctuary city, and it's just going to be a mess. So put a railing on your house. I mean, God is so practical. He's like, think about others. Don't just think about yourself. And well, I put a, you shouldn't have been on my roof in the first. What are you doing on my roof? He goes on, he says, do not plant your vineyard with two types of seed. Otherwise, the entire harvest, both the crop and your plant and the produce of your vineyard will be defiled. God's like, look, when you start planting multiple seeds, you're trying to create something for yourself. He goes, and we know this now. We do crop rotation. Why? So we can replenish the soil. He's like, if you plant different seeds all in the same place, you're going you're to drain the soil of nutrients. You need to crop rotate. We know this now, and we think we're so smart. We got this figured out because we're, well, it's, God said it. <laughs> he goes on, he says, do not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You're like, that seems so strange. Like, why, why not? I have an ox and I have a donkey, right? Because the donkey is taller than the ox, and they rub each other raw, and then they're going to get an infection, and they're both going to die. Better just to plow with one and go slower. And they're going to be mad at each other, and they're just going to kick each other the whole time. Stop it. No, you stop it. I'll show you. I mean, because they're just killing each other in this yoke. This is practical. It makes total sense. Do not wear clothes made of both wool and linen. Make tassels on the four corners of the other garments you wear. He's like, you need a little bling. I don't know why the tassels are there. I mean... I want you to look sharp. I don't, there are reasons behind it, but it's the idea here where God's like, look, if you sew linens together of different uh, threads and different things, they're not going to last as long. They're going to pull apart. One's going to shrink at a different rate than another one is. D don't do that. Now, should we not wear blended garments today? No, that's not what we're talking about. At this time, he's saying, you guys are not thinking ahead. You're not thinking about what I've given you. You're trying to manipulate everything. I'm just asking you to keep it really simple. He goes on, and this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5. We're going to shift gears, and I'll be done. In Matthew 5, Jesus talks. He pronounces the ultimate blessing. We just read a bunch of laws about oxen and clothing and murder and war and everything else, and you look at that and go, I don't, those are blessings? The things we just read? Yes, those are blessings. God is pronouncing what it looks like that when you get in the land, this is what's gonna make me happy. This is what happiness looks like. This is how you take care of other people. This is how you think beyond yourself. When Jesus preaches his first sermon 
In Matthew 5, this is the Sermon on the Mount, his first sermon he ever gives publicly to a huge crowd. When he gives his sermon, he walks through Deuteronomy. That's what he's doing. And he starts out with blessing. We're going to a new land. Let me give you the words of where we're going. And if you follow me, what this is going to look like. None of this looks like blessing. By our definition, you ready? Here it goes. When he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, the poor in spirit are happy. What? I mean, can you imagine being disciples? You've laid down your life. You're like, we're going to go kill some people, going to war like Deuteronomy talks about. I've left my vineyards. I've left my homes. We're going with the Messiah. And he looks and he goes, the poor in spirit will be the most happy. What? No, those are the cowardly, effeminate men. I don't, no, I'm a strong. I'm not a coward. No, the poor in spirit, those who don't trust in themselves, don't trust in their own ability, but trust in God's and his wisdom above their own. Those are the people that are truly happy, blessed in life. And he goes on and he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they're looking for another kingdom. They're not looking for something here. That's why they're so happy. They're clueless. They're like, I don't care. <laughs> I got someplace that. I'm good. And don't these people drive us nuts because they won't worry with us, right? We try to get them to worry with us, and they're like, I'm just trusting in heaven. I got nothing. We're good. God's going to provide. I don't know. And you're like, <sighs> he goes on, and he says, those who mourn are happy. No, you're mourning. How can you mourn and be happy at the same time? Well, if you've ever been to a funeral of someone who knew Jesus and you know where they're at, because they were poor in spirit and they're trusting in heaven, there is a joy deeper in that funeral than you've ever felt in your life. And there's a joy that enters your heart when you know that God and you're gonna see them someday that's deeper than anything. And so even in the midst of your mourning and the tears shedding down your face, there is a smile that comes on your face because you know what this life's about and where you're headed. He goes on, he says, they will be comforted. The gentle are blessed. They're happy. No, gentle people are normally beat up. No, they're blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're happy. There's a difference between hungering and thirsting for righteousness and living in legalism. Legalistic people aren't happy because they're not hungering and thirsting for God's character and his rightness and who he is. They're hungering to be right, and they're miserable. And he said, but the ones who really hunger, hunger, hunger and thirst for God will be filled. The merciful are happy for they will be shown mercy. The pure in heart are happy, for they will see God. The peacemakers are happy, for they will be called sons of God. And you think the peacemakers? Listen, there's two different ways to make peace. We just read the De Deuteronomy passage. He said, you're going to go into these cities, and if they don't accept the offer of peace, then you're going to make peace. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are happy. Really. You ever been persecuted when you've done the right thing? Do you feel real happy? No, you got to have faith to feel happy. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. In other words, they're thinking of another kingdom, which is why they can lay down their rights here. You are happy when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Listen, some people persecute you and insult you because you're just a jerk, right? I, I can be that way sometimes. Like sometimes I'm being insulted because I just, I did the wrong thing, I didn't do something right, and I was a jerk. Jesus says, look, if that's the reason you're being persecuted and insulted, that's on you. But if you're trying to represent me, and you're trying to make me known, and you say, I can't do that, that's not what God wants to do, then you can take confidence in the fact that you are blessed. You can find happiness. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. This is the fourth time he's talked about another promised land. He's laying out the new promised land in this passage. And then he goes, for that's how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then he goes on and he lays out all these things. When you read this passage, he talks about murder. He talks about divorce. He talks about marriage. He, he talks about anger. He talks about lust. The Sermon on the Mount, judgment. He talks about how to make a judgment. Everything in this is like if you go back and read Deuteronomy, you're not going to read all Matthew 5, but if you go back and read Deuteronomy, it's like, wait, this sounds really familiar. 
Exactly. He's saying, I'm leading you into a new promised land. Here's what the blessings of the new promised land look like. Now here are the laws. And he says, no longer is it an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's what you've been taught. And you've been taught it in the wrong way. He says, you've been taught if you don't commit adultery with the woman, then you're fine. I tell you, if you have even thought of her lustfully, you've already done it in your heart. And the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is like, I'm just showing you your heart. You got the law in Deuteronomy and you said, see, I'm doing it. And you made a checklist. And God's saying, I want your heart. And so Jesus is laying it out. That's why he goes on to say, don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. See, you would have heard this and thought, we don't have to obey the prophets anymore. We don't have to obey the Old Testament. The Old Testament's done away with. I don't have to pay any. This is great. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets and to say they were all wrong. I did not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. To show you how awesome it is to obey every command perfectly. That's what Jesus did. From the right heart. See, he wasn't obeying every command for his own glory. He was obeying every command for his father's glory. And his father, the Bible said, extended his glory back to the son because of that. And he says, that's how it's going to be with you. That when you live for my glory, then I say, hey, Father, look at what they're doing for your glory. And then it comes back down and goes to you. It's the same process. And he goes on, he says, for I assure you until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of the letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Listen, Jesus accomplished the fulfillment on the cross. It's already been done, but not yet. We're not fully fulfilled yet. By faith, we believe we're fully fulfilled. By faith, we say, Jesus has done it all. I can't earn it. But then we get busy obeying him, loving him, because we recognize we're not in the promised land yet. We're wandering around. And he goes on, and he says, Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So often today, we just tell people not to worry about God's commands, not to worry about his laws, not to worry about his statutes. It's no big deal. You're forgiven. Just move on with your life. Jesus says, if you're doing that, stop it. That, that's not my heart. I want people to understand these laws. I want them to understand what's there. I want them to understand. Now, some of them are hard to understand. We're not sure, right? The whole, like I said a few weeks ago, you boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Don't do that. I'm like, what is that? We don't know. It meant something back then. We don't know what it quite means now, right? It doesn't mean it was a bad law. It probably made total sense to the people who heard it in that day. They're like, oh, yeah, don't do that. And we're like, what is, I don't, okay. I, I've never thought about it. He goes on and he says, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He jumps down and later and he says, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. And if you would have heard this, this would have been the worst message you've heard in your life. Jesus turned blessing upside down that you'd been trusting in for thousands of years. Then he goes on to say, I'm not gonna rescue you from the law. I'm gonna help you do it. And then he says, and, and I, my desire is for you to become perfect like me. And we look at that and go, no, I don't think I want to, no, that's a lot of work. We can't do this on our own. That's the beauty of this passage. The beauty of this passage is Jesus saying, look, the scribes and Pharisees think they can be right on their own effort. You can't. You can only be right by crying out to God like those elders washing their hands in the stream saying, we can't fix this. Someone has been killed and we can't fix it. So we cry out to you for your mercy and your grace you are Yahweh who gives. You are the gift giver. We need your forgiveness. Help us be right. Make us right before you. That is the story of the Old Testament. That's the story of the New Testament. That's what Jesus is preaching here. And then he wraps up and he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, this is the end of his sermon, and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. Can I just tell you that most of us are building our houses on sand. 
We don't even know God's word. We don't care to know what it says. We don't want to understand it. We don't want to see the beauty and the blessings of obedience in his word and, and the gift of faith that he's given to us that we respond to. The rain fell. How many of you have seen rainfall recently? The rain keeps falling every weekend. I think it's like 22 out of 24 weekends so far going back that it's rained. The rains fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed, and the collapse was great. When Jesus had finished this sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. This is huge. He was teaching them as one who had the authority to pronounce blessings. That's how he started his sermon out. He said, I'm going to tell you what blessing really looks like, what happiness really looks like. Let me lay it out for you. I have the authority given by my father to do that. See, all those verses we read in Deuteronomy, all of those were about authority. The scribes, the elders, the people in authority in that time period who had to make these decisions. The cities where people could flee to and that was the authority, that boundary marker that God gives these authorities for us to be a blessing. And he says, look, this guy teaches as if he has authority. Like this, like his, our scribes constantly twist it to make everybody happy. Our scribes are constantly trying to fit everybody in and make everybody happy. They just won't tell it like it is. And this guy tells it like it is. We've, we've never seen teaching or authority like this. And just to confirm his authority, right after this, he goes out and does a bunch of healing. <laughs> just, to, just to prove that I have authority over everything, even death and life and sickness. You see, you and I, the reason we aren't experiencing and pronouncing God's blessing, if we're really honest, is because most of the time I don't want to be under his authority. I don't want to place myself under what he says is a blessing. I want to determine what's a blessing and what's not a blessing. Instead of saying, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that what you say is true and that if, if I'm truly going to be happy, then, then I can do these things by faith. And it's not because I'm trying to measure up to you. It's not like I do all these things and I, I feel this happiness. No, you're going to do all these things. It's going to make you poor in spirit and persecuted. Because you just love people. You want to do the right thing. You see, in all these laws, the issue behind every one of these laws is how do you see God and what's your heart for others? That's every law. And God's looking at us and he's saying, if you know my son, you know that he left heaven itself and obeyed every law perfectly to love others, to love his heavenly father and to give up his life. And that's what he calls us to do is to surrender and to say, you have all authority. I'm astonished when I read your teaching in the Old Testament and read your teaching in the New Testament. I'm astonished when I see that I'm free from the law and the burden of it. I've been freed now to obey you from, from just being joyful and thankful that I can do it, not because I have to. See, there's the difference. There's the rub. Let me ask you this morning. What's your response when you read these laws in the Old Testament? Do you just think to yourself, I'm glad I don't have to do them. I'm glad they don't pertain to me. I know Jesus and so I'm good. Or do you read them and does it cause you like it did me to think through and go, how am I thinking about other people? Do I really think about the promised land I'm headed to and live in light of that and getting ready for it like the people of God weren't getting ready for it? When God gives me things, do, whatever they are, even if, if it's mourning, do I, do I find joy in the fact that I get to mourn and trust him for comfort? See, this, this is radical. This isn't like any other religion. This was super radical in their day and it's just as radical today. Can I just encourage you to search your heart? Where's your heart with, with a heavenly father, with a God that's given us this blessing of his word and, 
given us assurance of righteousness and forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ, that we can't earn it. It's not about obeying all these laws so I go look at me and how awesome I am. It's literally like those priests washing their hands in a bloody stream saying, I can't do it, but, but Lord, forgive us and we'll get up from this and try to make it right if we can. I, I trust you. If you've not made that decision to cross that line with Jesus and surrender, I encourage you this morning to do it. Just be done. Say, you know what? It starts with being poor in spirit. And I'm so prideful. And I'm so, I'm going to, I'll show God. I'm going to show everybody. And you just need to come to a place where you say, I'm, I'm done. I recognize that if I'm going to experience the love and joy of Christ, I have to break. I have to just surrender. And for those of us who call ourselves believers, when you read through these happy things, when you read through these laws, let me ask you, Where's your heart? Do these laws excite you? Does it excite you to read God's word, to see his heart and his love for his people and how radical this was in the day? Or, or is it just like, eh, it's just too much, too much work, it's too much of a burden? Let me just encourage you, don't have that. Turn your face towards God. Turn your face toward, back towards him and say, I know I know you and I know I've walked away, but I want, I want to be close to you again. Show me how I can, can love people well and love you well. See, that's our response this morning. That's Deuteronomy that Yahweh is giving you. He, he has given us his son as a payment for our sin. He's given us his law as a gift so that we can marvel at it, not believing that it's going to fix anything. You can do all this law and you want to know what's going to happen. If we got every law in the United States, if we did every Old Testament law right, you know what's still going to happen? Jesus is going to come back, destroy it all, and build his own kingdom, and he's going to be a benevolent monarch with no voting. <laughs> still going to happen no matter how righteous we are that doesn't mean we shouldn't be righteous it just means we constantly remember this isn't our home there's another home